Hey listeners, Sarah here. It is just past July 16th, which is the birthday of one of the favorite broads I have ever been able to bring to this podcast for us, so it felt like a good occasion to bring back her episode. Today, we're going to be rebroadcasting our episode on Miss Ida B. Wells. If you don't have a clue who she is, then you are in for a real treat. Ida is widely considered one of the most prominent figureheads in the civil rights movement, but her story takes place 50 or 60 years before the more famous civil rights movements like the March on Washington and the Montgomery bus boycott. So the work that Ida did laid the foundation for all the work that came after it. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode and Ida's story. It's also worth mentioning for our newer listeners or people that haven't been with us in a while that sometimes in these rebroadcast episodes from a couple years ago, we say Chloe's dead name. So there's no need for you to be confused. It's still Chloe. She has just transitioned since we first recorded this episode. All right. I hope you enjoy this rebroadcast episode about Miss Ida B. Wells. She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women in history. I am Sarah Gorski. I'm Sam Eggers. I am Chloe Skye. And I am here with a broad who I actually found in the news from a news story this week. Um, I was reading through, you know, flipping through through the news this week and saw that a special posthumous Pulitzer Prize citation was awarded to Ida B. Wells last week. And I thought, who's Ida B. Wells? And I read a little more about her, and I knew immediately that she was the broad that I had to bring in this week. So I am bringing you Ida B. Wells, who just received a Pulitzer Prize citation for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a quote from the Pulitzer team. Have you guys heard of her before? No, I haven't. I think I have heard the name, but I had no idea who she was. I think I just stumbled upon that name at some point in some of my research. Yeah. Well, you know what's crazy is now that we've been doing broad this this podcast for how many months now? Four, six. five months? I think we're at six months. Oh, my oh, wow. God. We started in November. Mid-November was the first one. Oh, oh my God. We should have had a party, a socially distanced party <laughs> for our six-month anniversary. <laughs> Happy <laughs> six-month anniversary, broads. Uh, Happy six-month anniversary. <laughs> I'll eat some cake by myself in my apartment. Uh, <laughs> I'll do the same. I'll do the same. Just for this, not because I was gonna. <laughs> not because I just have it lying around and I'm eating right. some every no, day no, no, all no. the time. <laughs> Celebratory. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was going to say is now that we've been doing this podcast for six months, um, as I start to do my research, I start to recognize names of other broads that we've already done. So we do have a few um, previously covered broads appearing, guest appearances in, in this broad story. Oh, I love um, a guest Which appearance. I thought was a, like... It felt like a cool milestone in terms of like the fact that we've been covering a lot of awesome bras and then we're starting to see where they intersect. I thought I find like a lot of great pleasure in that. Um, so let's dig right in. Uh, so 
Ida B. Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 16, 1862. Her parents were enslaved uh, to a local architect, and then they were freed when the uh, Emancipation Proclamation happened in um, 1863. Uh, and after they were freed, um, both of her parents found pretty decent success. Her father started a local carpentry business and became involved in politics. And her mother became famous for her amazing cooking. So her, her family did quite well. She, she was born one of eight children. She had a, a lot of siblings. <laughs> wow. Um, and I didn't get much about her very, very early childhood history, but... Um, she, as soon as possible, enrolled in historically black liberal, liberal arts colleges. And she like, I can tell she was like school obsessed. We see uh, these first couple of years, she like really is big on education. She's going to school and she seems to be doing great for herself. She goes to Rust College in Holly Springs. And then in September 1878, her family is hit with yellow fever and both her parents and one of her brothers dies. Oh, uh, so it's yellow fever. It's the COVID of its of its day, right? Yeah. Um. So uh, all of her extended family came in and were like, "Well, we better, you know, we'll have to." There's so many other kids left. We should break them up and send them to different different foster homes and Ida was like uh Ida was like um no I don't think we should do that I think we should keep all of the siblings together so she found work at a local elementary school and started teaching and then her paternal grandmother Peggy Wells uh, and a couple other local friends and relatives they kind of stayed and helped them out and cared for them while while uh cared for the other kids while Wells was at her job while she was teaching but then Peggy Wells her her uh, grandmother dies from a stroke as well as her sister apparently and so Ida was kind of like oh my god I can't do this alone so she's got to kind of throw in the towel and she moves um, to her aunt Fanny in Memphis with her two youngest sisters and this is in 1883 I can't believe people were named Fanny back in the day like it's it's just hilarious to me <laughs> like what is Fanny isn't it short, short for? isn't it sh- I think it's like Francis. I think it's like mm. one of those oh. other names. They, okay. All right. That's a little better. I don't it's know if that's like true. Fene- I like Fenelope or something. Fenelope. <laughs> I hope it's Fenelope. <laughs> Fenelope. Oh. <laughs> so she moves to Memphis and she gets hired almost immediately by the school system. She starts teaching again. And then on the summer vacations... When she has off of school, she's still going to college. So she takes summer sessions at Fisk University in Nashville, as well as Lemoyne Owen College in Memphis. And those are both also historically black colleges. Um, so she is like this go-getter, getting her education, rocking her life out. And then on May 4th in 1884, a train conductor with the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad orders Ida to give up her seat in the first-class ladies' car and move to the smoking car, which was already crowded with other passengers. Earlier in the same year, the Supreme Court had, had a ruling against the, federal, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, and that was the act which banned racial, racial, racial discrimination in public accommodations. Um, but the Supreme Court overruled it and supported the railroad companies that wanted to segregate passengers. So there's all this like crazy civil rights shit going on right now. And this is much earlier 
by the way, I had to look it up, um, but this is like significantly earlier than the more common civil rights knowledge that we've got. You know, Rosa Parks wasn't until like, I think it was 1950. So this is like, this is 1884. This is pretty early in the civil rights um, battle. Um, and so Ida refuses to give up her seat. She's like, I will not do it. And the conductor and two men drag her out of the car. Oh. Um, wow. And she is pissed. Yeah. So she writes a, a newspaper article for this newspaper, The Living Way, which was a black church weekly newspaper about the way she was treated on the train. And she hires um, a black attorney to sue the railroad, but the railroad pays off her attorney. No. So she hires another what? attorney, a white guy, uh, and then they win her case. And the local court grants her a $500 award. Wow, I can't believe she won. That's incredible. Like in that time, I would think they would have just done all kinds of horrible things and to, to get the case to rule against her. That's incredible. Well, I'm sorry to say it was a short oh, victory. Oh, no. <laughs> because the railroad company, as Americans do, uh, appealed, wrote an appeal to the Tennessee Supreme Court. Uh, and it reversed, it reversed the earlier ruling, no. saying, quote, we think it is evident that the purpose of the defendant in error was to harass with a view to this suit and that her persistence was not in good faith to obtain a comfortable seat for the short ride, end quote. And she was ordered to pay the court costs. Uh. So she writes, there's this quote from her that uh, upon this ruling, she, she said, quote, I felt so disappointed because I had hoped such great things from my suit for my people. Oh, God, is there no justice in this land for us? Oh, that's painful. He, yes, a huge bummer. A hu after, after this victory and then this like total defeat after this appeal. I barely understood their reasoning for overturning that. Like That was nonsensical. That she wasn't in good faith trying to get a, a comfortable seat. Like, what? They were saying that she, she made a fuss in order to sue, not because she actually needed a comfy seat. They were like, oh, you just wanted to sue us, and that was your intention with all of this. They like, like. Yeah, I wanted to be dragged out of my seat. That's what I wanted to happen. Yeah. And, and let me just add, like, as I have been reading more about all of, especially Ida's story um, and doing this research, um, how completely stacked the court system was against African Americans, like, entirely. So, in fact, that that overturning is not actually something that was unusual in the time period. What was unusual is that she won the first time around. Um, Which, uh, but, what state was the this did this happen in? Uh, it was in Memphis, I believe. Yeah. It's in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think actually I don't know. I don't have it in my notes. But it was either Memphis. She, you know, she was frequently traveling between Memphis and Nashville, so it was on the train either right. probably to or from those locations. So anyway. She uh, she's super disappointed, but she continues to teach, um, but she's becoming kind of increasingly active in journalism and um, she gets an editorial position for the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. She begins writing weekly articles for the newspaper that she wrote that other uh, article for. Uh, and she has this pen name Lola. Uh, and so she she's writing all these articles and she's specifically attacking a lot of the Jim Crow policies that existed. Um, Good for her. Yeah. In 89, she, she um, gets promoted to editor and co-owner uh, of uh, the paper The Free Speech and Headlight, uh, which was a black-owned newspaper in Memphis. 
Um, and then in 1891, she's fired from her teaching job because they did not care for the fact that she was writing so publicly about <laughs> civil oh, rights. Geez. That sounds about right. Ugh. And yeah, and specifically the Memphis Board of Education that fired her said that she was criticizing conditions in the black schools and they did they didn't care for the criticism, right? <laughs> schools. Right. <laughs> um fuck you Memphis Board of Education, eat a dick. Uh so uh she was fired from her teaching job but she kept writing um and for the most part like her writing actually she she did really well. She was a like a successful, well-respected woman in the community. She was basically like a, a solid part of the middle class, which was pretty rare for a woman of color at the time. Um, so she had done really well for herself. Um, and there's this great quote from her um, at age 24. She wrote, quote, I will not begin at this late day by doing what my soul abhors, sugaring men, weak, deceitful creatures with flattery to retain them as escorts or to gratify a revenge. And you can kind of <laughs> see like this like, She's this like proto-feminist, right? She's this. She's fiery. She's mad. I love that quote. I think I'm gonna put it on my wall. <laughs> That's quotes. really good. Um, okay, so here's the big story of her life, uh, or one of them. I she has a lot of stories actually. Um, but in 1892, there is a lynching at the Curve Grocery Store in Memphis. Um, and I hadn't heard the story. So I'm like, I am super grateful that Ida's story is educating me on a whole bunch of black history that I had not been taught before, which is an unusual, not an unusual thing for me to say because, you know, we're never taught any of that history. And now we're trying to course correct it here. I love it. Uh, so basically there was two grocery stores across the street from each other in Memphis. Uh, one was called the People's Grocery Store, which was also called The Curve. Um, and then there was this, I didn't write down the name of the other one. Uh, it was something stupid, though. <laughs> um, and one was owned by a black man. It was like the black grocery store and the other was the white grocery store. Uh, and one day a white boy and a black boy are playing marbles in front of the people's grocery, um, which is owned by Thomas Moss, who's, a, who's the black guy. Uh, and the two boys get into an argument over the game and they start to fight. So he's got these, these two boys are fighting and the black boy is starting to like kick the white boy's ass. And the white boy's father comes out of the white grocery store and starts beating the black boy. Uh, and then a couple of the grocery store employees from People's Groceries, uh, two black men, come out and they break up the fight. They pull them apart. But it kind of becomes this like mob scenario. Right. And so it, it dissipates a little for the day, but the tensions are really high. And then the next day, the owner of the white grocery store, whose name is William Barrett, he storms over to the curve. And he says, the blacks are thieves. And he smacks one of the employees who had broken the boys apart, Calvin McDowell. He smacks him with his pistol. Oh. And Calvin manages to like wrestle the pistol, pistol away from him and gets a shot off at Barrett. But he misses. Wait, this is all because two kids were playing a game of marbles. And got into a fight and started, like, kind of beating on each other. And then the adults got involved and started beating on each other. Right? So this is all escalating. And now I have to also insert into the story here that William Barrett, 
is it was known to have been like extremely frustrated at the successes of the black grocery store across the street. So it was taking his business away. He didn't like that black people were so successful across the street from him. That was like kind of like a widely known fact. And in general, a lot of the violence uh, against black people post-emancipation, like in this period of time, um, white people and white businesses were like very threatened by the success of black people. And the marbles was just an excuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so so this little, so this pistol fight happens, but nobody dies. But pe- but the tensions are like ratcheted to a, ba- a bazillion, basically. And then six days later, six white dudes try to storm people's grocery. They like come up and they try to like attack the grocery store. But the black people weren't idiots and they knew that there was like all this tension building. And so they were like more or less ready. And they kind of like rained out a hail of bullets as these guys are trying to attack the store. And some white people got shot. Immediately, hundreds of white people were deputized to put down what the, lo- the local white papers were calling, quote, an armed rebellion by black men in Memphis. So all oh these white people God. who are now suddenly of like deputies. that's how you frame it. They come and they get these guys who were literally just defending their store from being like ransacked and destroyed, right? Uh, and so Thomas Moss, the owner of People's Grocery, is named as a conspirator, along with Calvin McDowell and this other guy, Stuart. And the three men are arrested and jailed. Um, but at 2.30 in the morning, 75 men wearing black masks, they storm the jail cells and they take the men out and they shoot. They bring them to uh, the rail yard and they shoot them dead. Oh, my God. Holy shit. And it was this huge mob. And just before he was killed, uh, they got a quote from Moss saying to the mob, tell my people to go west. There is no justice here. So uh, I forgot to say at the beginning of the story, Thomas Moss is is a friend of Ida's. Ida's like friends with these guys. This is Ida's neighborhood. And so she's a witness basically to all of this that happens. Everything beforehand with all the tensions between the black and the white businesses and then the marbles, the mobs, and then this lynching. So after the lynching, Ida writes in her, in her journal, Free Speech and Headlight, and she urges people to leave Memphis. She says, there is therefore only one thing left to do. This is a quote, save our money and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. Yeah. Um, so this event, um, this is a huge turning point for Ida because she's witnessed her friends go through this horrible experience and, and, and she starts to investigate lynching across the South. She launches an investigation into lynching itself. Um, and she starts to interview people associated with lynchings, including there was a big lynching lynching in uh, Tunica, Mississippi, where the father of a, a young white woman had pushed a lynch mob to kill a black man that his daughter was sleeping with quote, to save the reputation of his daughter. Um, so she starts to uncover kind of all these lynchings that were done not like they were done totally because because of white people mostly being jealous or mad at the success of black people trying to defend like there are all these reasons that are given for lynchings, which are totally all lies. Right. Um, and what's interesting, too, is that like none of these none of this news about lynchings. You know, people in the South generally know that it happens often, but people in the North kind of didn't even know about all of this horror happening on the black community. They were, it was very ill-reported outside of the South. And then in um, May of 
1892, she publishes an editorial refuting what she called the, quote, old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. If Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached which would be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women, end quote. And in retaliation for her editorial, her newspaper office is burned to the ground. Oh, my God. I was going to say, talk about taking your life in your own hands or trying to report on that stuff. Yes. So her so that so her office is burned to the ground and she leaves Memphis um, and she re- relocates uh, up to Chicago. In uh, October of 1892, she publishes all of her lynching research in a pamphlet titled Southern Horrors Lynch Law in All Its Phases. And so she had, had gone through all these accounts of these lynchings, particularly due to the alleged, quote, rape of white women. And she concludes that Southerners cried rape as an excuse to hide the real reasons for lynching, lynchings, which was black economic progress, which threatened white Southerners uh, with competition and white ideas of enforcing black second class status in society. Um, and so it was basically white people's way of continuing to suppress black people, even though they couldn't do it through slavery. They just were doing it through all these hate crimes and through lynchings. And she, she really starts to call out some of these laws and these things that are disenfranchising black people, poll taxes, literacy tests, other things like that. She, she really kind of like lays it all out and is kind of lays out these, what we can see are white crimes against black people. And then she also, um, publishes another report called the red record, in 1895, which was a 100-page pamphlet describing lynching in the United States since the Emancipation Proclamation. And it also kind of covered all of black people's struggles in the South since the Civil War. It explored all of the alarmingly high rates of lynching. And she said that during Reconstruction, most Americans outside the South didn't realize the growing rate of violence against black people. And she believed that during slavery, white people hadn't committed as many attacks because of the economic labor value of slaves. Um, But that since slavery time, 10,000 Negroes have been killed in cold blood through lynching without the formality of judicial trial and legal execution. That was her quote from the, the pamphlet. So she, I mean, there's a huge, uh, I actually, I wasn't, I didn't have enough time to pull up and read uh, her publications, but she really just lays, lays it all out for everybody. The Red Record includes 14 pages of statistics related to the lynching cases and graphic accounts detailing the lynches. And she takes her data actually from a lot of white correspondence and white press bureaus and white newspapers. So uh, it had a huge, huge far-reaching influence across the country in the debate about lynching. Uh, and it grabbed the attention of all these Northerners who had never heard of lynching. And it also, like, for the fir- it was kind of the first publication that ever questioned whether or not black men deserved, like, during that, when the white girl cries rape, like, people always were like, well, that black guy deserved it then. And people are suddenly like, oh, wait. He didn't. He didn't do that. Oh, white people are weaponizing that excuse. Um, And this was really the very first publication that ever kind of put that out into the open so widely. Um, And it really kind of so these publications became her campaign against lynching and in publicizing all of these wrongs. And uh, she starts to um, she books some speaking tours in Britain. She starts to actually spread the word even beyond America. Uh, so she goes to, to Britain in 1893, and then again in 1984. Um, these tours were a huge opportunity for her to get larger white audiences, um, which she actually had trouble with in America. There's a lot of shutdown, right? The white people kept shutting it down. But in Britain, she got like a lot more traction with um, her news, and people were totally shocked at all these things happening in America. 
Um, and as a result of her both of her lectures, she got huge coverage in both the British and the American press. So she ended up getting more American press because of her tours in Britain. Oh, the irony. Although a lot of people, a lot of the American magazines started, they were most, you know, a lot of them were like really slanderous about her. Um, in fact, the New York Times called her, quote, a slanderous and nasty, nasty-minded mulatrists. What? <laughs> M-U-L-A-T-R-E-S-S. Mulatrists. Um, she she they, kept so plugging away. nasty woman. Yeah. <laughs> nasty, nasty-minded mullet. Oh, my God. The New York Times. Um, so she got a, like a shit ton of bad press. But she uh, didn't care. And she kept on reporting. Um, and she moved on to other issues, too. So that was her big kind of expose on lynching. But then she also uh, did a big breakdown of the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, uh, where her and Frederick Douglass and other black leaders, they organized a, a boycott of the the uh, Columbian Exposition because it basically was excluding black people from all the exhibits. Um, and they wrote uh, a pamphlet, The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition. Um, and they distributed it to, to 20,000 people at the fair and they got that out there. And then um, right after that, in 1895, she marries. She gets married. Um, this man named Ferdinand Barnett, who is a widower with two sons, uh, who is a prominent attorney and also a civil rights activist and journalist. It becomes this total dream team. So she's always done this on her own. And then she marries this guy who also has like everything else in alignment with her. And it's awesome. Um, and they had, they had met together when working on the pamphlet for the Columbian Exposition. <laughs> and uh, so her husband, Barnett, he is, was also a founder of the Chicago Conservator, which was the first black newspaper in Chicago. And then Ida began writing for the paper right around the pamphlet time. And then after they get married, she's, she's promoted to editor, which seems appropriate. And they were both journalists. They were both activists. And so they really just together, they were like a superpower couple. It was awesome. So he had two children as they got married. They also ended up having four more children. Um, I have to say that it's so like, you guys know I'm a raging feminist. It's always so disappointing <laughs> to read like feminist heroes who are total bitches. But um, I have to say, there's a quote of Susan B. Anthony. After Ida starts having children, Susan B. Anthony says, she seems a little distracted now. <laughs> Damn, Susan. Ooh. Susan. Throw that shade. God. What? What a bitch. <laughs> um, and I should add in, I didn't, I didn't add like a, a big punch list of this in my like notes breakdown and I don't want to go too long. But there definitely, um, for those of you who are also raging feminists, <laughs> there definitely was a huge gap between the white activists of the time. They, they didn't really actually like Ida that much. Um, and I think like you can kind of see this like very early lack of intersectionality in these in this time, which is really interesting. Um, and there's another woman that like should have been her contemporary and they should have been like a power team together. But it was like really clear that this woman was like a total racist and mm. only out to help white women. And um, I don't have the bullet list to give you guys like the details of that. But if you dig more into Ida and her story, you'll kind of see this like breakdown of this like duel between them and the terrible things this other woman said when they're both fighting for almost the same you know, they're both fighting for women's rights. They're both trying to, you know, get civil rights going and suffragettes and all that. And people just don't respect black women because people are racist assholes. So anyway, um, Frederick Douglass is a huge fan of Ida's. He's a huge supporter of her. 
um, I have to, oh, there's a great quote uh, where he writes to Ida and he says, let me give you thanks for your faithful paper on the lynch abomination now generally practiced against colored people in the South. There has been no word equal to it in convincing power. I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison. Brave woman. Uh, Fred, so like Frederick that. Douglass is like one of her biggest fans um, and a huge supporter of her. But then some of the, the people that come after her in the civil rights um, actions, so like specifically Booker T. Washington and and uh, W. E. B. Du Bois, they both kind of don't like Ida. They're they're like very anti women. They're they're black power but anti women, yeah. and it's it's very interesting to watch this progression. And so actually, so she Ida becomes a founding member of the NAACP, but these dudes leave her name off the list of founders intentionally. No. Yes. Wow. And she's just writing about crimes that are affecting them like black men in the country she is but women were like not allowed to be seen as leaders and so and they also they also felt like she was too radical um and i think um i think that probably echoes back to you know she she did speak a lot in her writing about like the only way that black people can defend themselves is to to pick up arms like that is the only way we're gonna win um, and I think that the dudes kind of use that to kind of push her into, ooh, she's a radical. Ooh, we don't want to, we don't want to be associated with her. But she had been doing all this amazing work, and uh, it's a huge bummer. But she is, she is at this point known to be one of the founders of the NAACP, even though she wasn't in those original documents. And and then it, there's like you see these differing versions of history where Du Bois is like. No, she didn't want to be included in the list of founders. But then in her autobiography, Ida's like, no, no. Du Bois specifically excluded me. <laughs> Let's, and uh, you know, as I want to do, I do. I do believe the woman. So that is kind of like the the civil rights part of her story. She kept writing um, continuously, though, including she wrote a lot about um, school segregation. And so in 1900, the Chicago Tribune publishes this series of articles that's suggesting that the schools ought to be segregated. And Ida is like, what the fuck? And she she goes on a rampage. She writes a whole bunch of articles and publications about that. And then she also writes to Jane Addams. And she enlists her to get on her cause. And they pressure the group. Um, and they're able to stop the official adoption of segregation in the Chicago school system. Even though Chicago schools are se- still segregated, Ida was able to kind of stop this official motion for that. Um, and then during World War One. Ida is put under surveillance. <laughs> she's called a race agitator. <laughs> oh my god! She's listed, and she's not the only one. Uh, like there were like a bunch of people put on this this agitator list, and she's like, "Yeah, fuck it!" And she doubles down on her, on her civil rights work, and she starts keeps working with other leaders, including one of our previous broads, Madam C.J. Walker. Hey. They work together. Yeah, we remember her. She was our second broad. Yeah. Um, and, she now, and she now has that Netflix series. Yeah. Uh, the first black millionaire, right? At least African-American yes. millionaire. So uh, she, keeps, she keeps writing and writing. In 1917, she writes a series of investigative reports for the Chicago Defender uh, about the East St. Louis race riots. Um, in 1921, she publishes a report on the Elaine race riot in Arkansas. Um, and then she starts to get into politics. Um, she ran. She runs for the presidency of the National Association of Colored Women in 1942. Um, but she was defeated by another broad that we've covered, Mary Bethune. Oh, 
Oh. Look at that. All comes full circle. So I'm starting to see all these like connect connective tissues in this in the civil rights movement. It's kind of amazing and I love it. Um, although I'm, I don't love that they had to go against each other. Right. It'd be nice if everyone just got along. <laughs> Ida's not discouraged. Ida keeps plugging away. In 1928, she tries to become a delegate to the Republican National Convention, but she loses. She also starts... To, she was like a heavy Republican. She's very active in politics. Um, but then her stance... The articles I was reading said that her stance to the Republican Party started to shift a little bit because the Hoover administration was promoting this lily white policy on in southern republican organizations and she's like oh that's starting to get shady so she's starting to kind of her faith in the republican party is kind of uh, getting a little bit weaker um the same year though she starts writing her autobiography crusade for justice uh and then in 1930 she runs for a seat in the illinois senate but she does not win that either and then the following year March 25th, 1931, at the age of 68, she dies of kidney failure. She did not finish her autobiography, but her daughter, Alfreda, did much later in 1970. So her autobiography is out there. It's called The Crusade for Justice, the autobiography of Ida B. Wells. Nice. She's gotten a ton of recognition, I think much more posthumously, unfortunately, than she did in her real life. Um, She's another stamp broad. In 1990, there was a 25-cent stamp for her in... March of, I like this one. I included this one because fuck you, New York Times. The New York Times in 2018, they published a belated obituary for her. I guess they were doing a series for International Women's Day entitled Overlooked that wanted to remedy the fact that since 1851, their obituary pages have been dominated by white men, while significant women, including Ida Wells and others, have been ignored. (laughs) Whoa. So I guess the New York Times felt a little bit bad about their nasty, nasty comment. <laughs> I bet they didn't include that in the obituary. Oh, yeah. I bet they didn't. Probably not. I bet they didn't. Uh, and in 2018 also, the Chicago City Council renamed Congress Parkway Ida B. Wells Drive. And it is the first downtown Chicago street named for a woman of color, which cool. I love. That's what I've got. I, there's so much about Ida. I, I kind of, this is kind of the short version and the most significant things but she was a huge activist and involved uh in so many parts of the civil rights movement um and she's just an incredible broad so ida b wells everybody with now a pulitzer citation yay ida sounds well deserved for sure amazing she isn't she great yeah it's probably fair to say like we wouldn't even be talking about some of the things we're talking about today if she hadn't done the work that she did because it sounds like other people were just weren't doing it no, it's, it's impressive. I can't imagine how 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 terrifying it must have been too to be the first person sort of on the front lines reporting on these things and knowing that there probably would be some retribution mm-hmm. and going ahead and doing it anyway. Yeah. It's incredibly brave. So brave. Yeah, it, it is incredible. You can't even imagine like, you know, they, they the first thing they do is buy off her lawyer when she sues, you know, like oh, there's all this this white power at play and she just keeps on pushing even when she's not recognized and respected by her contemporaries, which makes me so sad. Um, but, you know, I the more and more we do all this research, the more and more I find that to be true of so many different movements. Mm-hmm. And there's like there's almost never the unification you, you think that you read in history books. There's always these like fractures within movements that run really deep. So it's interesting to read that. Um, and it's interesting to read that per the usual in American history and in the world history that women are kind of like 
shuffled off to the side while the men get the credit. But yeah. Ida B. Wells is finally getting the credit. Yay, Woo! Ida. That's good. To learn more about Ida B. Wells, see her pictures and some great quotes from this episode, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page to read more about me, Chloe, and Sam. Our bios, photos, links to our cool stuff is all there. And are you following Broads You Should Know on social yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, you've got to help spread the word about us. Share with your friends and family, and better yet, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you found Ida Wells' story very interesting, then you will also be interested to hear a few of our other Reporter Broad episodes, including Nellie Bly and Ida Tarbell, as well as our NAACP powerhouse broads, Mary McLeod Bethune, Ella Jo Baker, and Merle Evers. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>